This is a Federal News Network podcast. It's an age-old problem, but a practical one. How do you measure the value of spending on prevention? And that's a recurring challenge for federal agencies sensitive to the dangers of cybersecurity breaches and to appropriators who vote on the money. So how do you justify cybersecurity spending? For some of the latest thinking, we turn to Paul Rosenzweig, former Homeland Security cyber official, now a senior fellow at the R Street Institute. Paul, good to have you on. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. And just recently, in the past days, the Defense Information Systems Agency had to send out those letters telling people that their data was breached, a couple of hundred thousand people, and therefore they'll be getting free credit monitoring, et cetera, et cetera. And so sometimes these breaches do prove the importance of spending, but when nothing happens, it's a tough one. It is a tough one. Right now, if I'm the chief information security officer at any enterprise, whether it's DISA or a, or a private sector commercial enterprise, and I go to my management and I say, you know, give me $5 million for this new upgrade in security, they'll say, great, what do we get for it? And I'll answer, well, they make, it makes us safer. And they'll say, great, how much safer? At which point I go, because there's no way of quantifying the benefit of cybersecurity improvements. Or to put it more accurately, there's no transparent, auditable, generally accepted way of doing that. We know that adding a new firewall probably helps some or changing to two-factor authentication probably helps some, but We have no way of rigorously quantifying that in any way that that would address budget makers in Congress so that they can make comparative trade-offs of resource allocation and say, well, we'd rather invest $5 million there than over here. Uh, That is a problem. It means essentially that cybersecurity is an art. It's not a science. It's not a measurable science yet. And until it is something like that, Uh, it will never be able to get the resource allocation that's appropriate. And there's no private sector model for this, say, from the energy sector or some of the banking sectors where they've got equal cybersecurity risks? Essentially, no. Uh, One of the things that I did early on in studying this problem was try and survey all of the different ways in which people have used metrics to try and assert improvements in cybersecurity. And my colleague at R Street Catherine Waldron, put together a bibliography of all of the different methodologies uh, of which there are, you know, four or five dozen, none of which are agreed upon, none of which are commensurate with each other, all of which are kind of proprietary to different corporations. Most of what we do right now is cybersecurity by checklist, right? I give you a list of things to do and you check the boxes on all of them, a lot like FISMA, the Federal Information uh, Securities Management Act stuff. And, and that gives you a nice report that you put up on the desk and you never look at again. There is no dynamic way of doing it. In fact, when we, fat, when we did this survey, there was a, a substantial minority of people who said that it was impossible to do, that cyber, the cyber realm was so dynamic, so constantly changing, that any effort to actually measure uh, a security of an enterprise at a particular point in time was doomed to be outdated before the measurement was even completed, which was pretty grim. I mean, when you think about it, the fact that we would rely, you know, for 25% of our economy on an area, a sector whose safety cannot be decisively measured, 
that would be really pretty scary from a policy point of view. We're speaking with Paul Rosenzweig, Senior Fellow for National Security and Cybersecurity at the R Street Institute. And that checklist idea, in some ways, that resembles flight, where there are extensive checklists before you can fly, especially a plane with passengers or in reality, any plane. And given the safety record of commercial aviation in the United States, you could say that the checklist approach and whatever technology is behind all of the safety measures works pretty well. It does in areas like that where where the problem is a static one. The problem in cybersecurity is that it's dynamic. And in particular, it's uh, uh, we have human adversaries who are adapt to uh, our solutions. In the aviation field or in, or in, for example, automotive safety, the problems of uh, metalware and fatigue, construction, manufacturing problems, those are relatively well-bounded and readily, easily quantifiable. The challenge here is that as soon as I, in cyber, is that as soon as I build a checklist for problem A and think I've solved it, the adversaries move on to problem B or, or, or attack vector C is one of the reasons why some people think it's an insoluble problem. Um, for myself, I think that there are ways of measuring risk reductions and overall vulnerabilities that could probably be developed, but we aren't there yet. And when you mention the automotive industry, that brings to mind another issue with cybersecurity. I just heard this on a panel the other day. The car engineers always say the one thing we can't fix is the nut behind the wheel. In many cybersecurity incidents, the root cause is not so much lack of installed technology, but simply that somebody clicked on something they should not have. The phishing attack is one of the most potent things that can't be controlled because you can't stop all email. So maybe the training and education of your own staff is something that maybe doesn't get enough emphasis in all these budget discussions. I think that's exactly right. And that's actually one of the things that, that a good comparative metric might help with. Uh, I mean, you, 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 Kevin Mitnick, the, the famous hacker, once said, there's no patch for human stupidity. And that's essentially saying you can't fix the nut behind the wheel. Uh, but what we can do is ask questions like, if I have $5 million or $50 million, is it better invested in a new firewall or a new uh, enterprise intrusion detection system? Or is it better invested in training and education of my workforce and testing of them? And the answer right now to that question is, I don't know. I don't know how to make the comparisons between them. And because of that, we tend to uh, default to technological solutions, which are much easier to kind of think of as a box. You just buy a thing, you plug in the widget, and you're better off, rather than an ongoing human relations problem that is, uh, is never soluble, only, uh, only subject to mitigation. And you watch a lot of the activities of federal agencies. How would you assess the cybersecurity and critical infrastructure security agency, CISA, at Homeland Security? Are they on the right path, do you think, in terms of their role in federal cybersecurity? I think that, that creating CISA as an operational agency was a positive step for cybersecurity. It's good to have some place in the federal government, at least for the commercial world and the private sector, to have an input. I would say that they are still a, an agency in formation. It's only been a couple of years. They're still putting together their strategic approach. They're still building up their capabilities. It's probably 
too early to give them a real grade. Is, you know, incomplete is the right grade. But if I had to give them a grade right now, it would be a B. It could be higher. The main problem that CISA has right now is that much of the focus of leadership above the CISA level at DHS and in the White House is on other aspects of homeland security, most notably immigration. And so there's there's a real lack of executive focus on cybersecurity problems and issues, which is a which is as as everybody who who listens to the Federal News Network knows, you know, executive focus is what drives the federal government's attention in ways that we all understand, and it's lacking right now. So CIS is doing well, but it's not getting um, the love and attention it needs from senior management at DHS or the White House. I guess to underscore what you say, there is no cybersecurity coordinator at the White House level. There had been for about 10 years up until now. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, um, you know, in the early part of President Trump's administration, the Homeland Security Advisor Tom Bossert had a had a de- wealth of experience in cyber matters, as well as other Homeland Security matters. The Secretary of Homeland Security for a while, Kirsten Nielsen, had done much of her early work in cyber-related matters. And at that time, there was a focus of some form on cyber security. Today, the current acting head of DHS is not focused on cybersecurity. He's focused on immigration. There is, as you say, no cybersecurity coordinator at the White House. And the Homeland Security Advisor, uh, the the newly named Homeland Security Advisor, is not a uh, is not a cyber expert either. So I would say I would characterize it as that the bureaucracy in the federal government is doing good work at the level that it can, but without executive focus, it can't make great great changes. Paul Rosenzweig is senior fellow for national security and cybersecurity at the R Street Institute. Thanks so much. Okay, thank you very much. It was great to be with you. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand and on your device. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable. And, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit LiveXLive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.